Again, want to welcome you to City Church. My name is Pete Hartwig, and I serve as the lead pastor here at City and have had the sheer honor of serving in this position for almost two decades now, just short of 20 years, and it's been amazing to see all that God has done. Now, I want to introduce someone to you, but before I do that, I just want to stress something that I think is very important, and we're highlighting this quite frequently. If you do not have a Bible app on your smartphone, tablet, or com- computer, I really want to encourage you to download the YouVersion Bible app. That's what it's called, the YouVersion Bible. And when you do that, you can call up that app when you're here at church. You can go to events in the menu bar, and when you click on events, all you have to do is put in the zip code, the local zip code, 22901. And when you do that, you can download my notes, you can download everything from this service this morning, and it'll also give you a link where you can pick up either the audio or the visual recording of this service, and usually it takes about 24 to 36 hours for us to upload this service online. And so I really want to encourage you to do that. Version Bible app. Click on events, put in 22901, which is the zip code. City Church will pop up, and once you've done that the first time, every time you click on events, City Church will be right there. And again, you can download the announcements, my teaching notes, and all of the above. Now, I've got someone that I would like to introduce, actually a couple of people, three people I'd like to introduce to you this morning, and I'm just going to ask them stand. And so I'm going to ask that Jesse and Kay... And Lori, their daughter, Owens, if you guys would stand, kind of turn. So I'm going to tell you who they are. Jesse has been uh, one of my mentors for the past 30 years. So he's been a missionary, a church planter. He's been involved with seeing Teen Challenge, literally put all over the world. He was involved with Teen Challenge almost from the beginning. He was a church planter here in the United States and then felt a call to go overseas, and he planted churches over there and kind of, sort of in some ways, completed his missionary career um, planting churches throughout Germany. And so we took a team uh, where we traveled to Germany and worked with him at a drug rehab center along with a church plant. Jesse and I have literally traveled the world together over the years. We've had a great, great uh, run of it, as we would say. And I would say he and I probably speak three to five times a week. And so you're going to get to hear from Jesse near the end of the teaching time. And as he would tell you, his name is Jesse Owens. Say Jesse Owens. And he is not the Olympic sprinter. He just wants you to know that in case you were confused by the fact that he was short, bald, and white. Although he and the real Jesse Owens became great friends because Jesse called Jesse Owens' mother out of the clear blue, introduced himself, said, I want to meet your son. And they did. And so he used to have the Jesse Owens on a radio program quite frequently. That's just a little look under the hood on how nuts he is, but you're going to discover the rest of that for yourself in just a few moments. So what we're doing here at City is we are dealing with what I feel is one of the primary issues in our culture today. It's fear. I think that fear and anxiety has reached a fever pitch. There's a time that 
I sense now that I sensed when I was a very young boy, and it was during the Vietnam War, and I can remember just my parents speaking in hushed tones. Our country was in a very difficult, difficult season, and there was anxiety, and there was fear. It was almost, uh, you could just sense it in the air. And I know that that same feeling in a lot of ways, I feel, has been permeating our culture. It's fascinating to me that if you look back at those years at the end of the Vietnam War when I was a young boy, that racism reached a fever pitch, that angst against government and mistrust in institutions and governmental things was at a fever pitch. But here's what most people don't realize. When that reached a fever pitch, God poured out His Spirit on our country in a profound, profound way. And literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hippies began to come to faith. It's called the Jesus Movement. That's when my family stepped into faith. We were not hippies. I can promise you we weren't hippies because my dad gave me my haircut. The haircut took about 90 seconds, and it was one clipper width of a gar blade. I hated it, absolutely hated it. So we weren't hippies. In fact, hippies were everything my dad despised. He's a German. Everything's in order, respect, hierarchy. And so we started going to a church that was filled with hippies. He hated it came to faith about 15 years later. <laughs> but all that to say this, my Bible tells me when it gets dark, God's grace gets poured out. His grace. And where sin abounds, that much more grace abounds. But we're going to talk about fear this morning. My son launched this series last week. He did a great job. Many of you have told me that he is better than I am. I do not forgive you for that. <laughs> and I remember when he first outran, outran me, we were at OBX for vacation. He was just barely a teenager, and we were at the sand dunes at Kitty Hawk, and he ran faster than me down the hill. And as he passed me for a split second, I thought about tripping him. <laughs> How many of you dads know exactly what I'm talking about? But when your son out preaches you, you have to take that up with God. That's the only place you can go for that. But I would encourage you to listen to the sermon if you were not here this past Sunday because he set the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about with fear. He'll be preaching next week and I'll be preaching the following week as we deal with this, what I believe is critical issue. His main theme was this, there's one commonality with all fears, one, and it's that Jesus has conquered them all. One commonality. Now, what I would like to do this morning is I'm going to take up a slice of the pie of fear that I'm praying you don't eat, but I'm going to take one slice of that pie, and it's the fear that is stopping us, fear that is stopping us. Here's what I know. A lot of us have something God's put in our heart to do or to go after or to chase, or to build yourself up for, but you simply don't do it because of fear. Fear 
is stopping us. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look in the Scriptures to an incredible story where fear was stopping an entire nation. And it's the story that's famous to all of us. It's called the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath. So I'm going to ask that you would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's page 227 in the Bibles that we provide. 227. Now, I am not going to be reading the entire story. It's a long chapter. It's a long story. I'm just going to be pulling excerpts from it. But for those of us maybe who read New York Times bestsellers, you will notice that David and Goliath was a recent New York Times bestseller. Malcolm Gladwell wrote another book. This one was entitled David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. You may have heard of his other books. His other books were called The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. How many of you have ever read a Malcolm Gladwell book? Raise your hand. Lots of us have. But the last book that he wrote was taken straight from the Bible. It's the story of David and Goliath. What does it look like when in life as underdogs we face Goliath? He used many case studies that are fun to read. One of the primary case studies was about a man who had dyslexia. And because he had dyslexia, he was an underdog, he was a misfit. But what he discovered is with dyslexia, he had to memorize tons of stuff that other people could just quickly read. Because of that, he became a world-class attorney, one of the most famous lawyers in all of New York City, and he made an absolute fortune. And dyslexia, which is what made him an underdog, actually became a strength for him, became a strength. And Malcolm Gladwell's book focuses on that whole idea of you've got this giant by the name of Goliath, and you've got David who's a young shepherd boy who comes up against Goliath, who's this militarily trained giant. And David beats him. David and Goliath. But here's how we're going to look at it this morning. We're going to look at the issue of fear and the fact that it's stopping many of us. And so in order to do that, we're going to take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 And really what I want to do is paint more of a picture for us this morning than reading it. I will reference several texts where you can kind of refocus in Scripture, but we're not going to read the whole thing. For many of us, this story is familiar. But for those of you who it's not, again, I'd like to paint a picture. The Bible tells us that King Saul, who's the first king of Israel, has been rejected by God. He had been anointed king, God's presence was with him, but because he was repeatedly disobeying God, God has now rejected him as king, although he's still in the kingly office. He still holds the position. At the point where we're getting ready to read the story, the prophet by the name of Samuel, who this book is named after, had already anointed young David to be king. Although Saul does not know this, obviously David does. David's the youngest of many brothers, 
And not only that, he is the shepherd. He's the young boy that works out on the back 40 and they entrust him to take care of sheep and almost nothing else. And so as the story goes, as you pick it up in 1 Samuel 17, the Israelite army is now confronted by the Philistines. The Philistines, in a lot of ways, in the Older Testament, are the personification of evil. And so here we have the Philistines, and the setting looks like this. Picture yourself in Scott Stadium. You're in Scott Stadium. On one side, if you draw a line lengthwise down the center of the field, on one side you would have the Philistine army, and on the other side you would have the Israelite army who are known as the army of God. And there they are kind of facing each other and they're getting ready for battle. The battle lines have been drawn. One is on one hill, the Bible tells us, and the other is on another. But as was not uncommon to save huge loss of life, at times in those days they would send out one military person to fight one from the opposing side. And so picture you're in Scott Stadium. The Israelite army is on one side. The, the Philistine army is on the other, and out walks the biggest football player you've ever seen in your life. His name is Goliath, over nine feet tall, nine foot tall. Some biblical scholars will tell you it's more like nine and a half feet tall. And Goliath walks out, and he is taunting the Israelite army for 40 days. Every morning and every night for 40 days, Goliath steps out and he taunts them and mocks them and says, who will come out and fight against me? And every day, the Israelite army, the Bible tells us that they get together, they cheer, they shout, they run to the battle line, and then Goliath steps out. They grow quiet. And here's what the Bible says. For 40 days, the Philistine named Goliath came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand, and the Israelites took their stand. Here's what I want to tell you. Taking a stand is not the same as moving forward. It's not. And oftentimes, people who take a stand make a whole lot of noise. The Israelite army would cheer, they would shout, they would give out this war cry, which is what verse 20 says. They would kind of hold the battle line, but no one was going forward. No one. And it was in that type of a scene that David shows up. He was between the age of 12 and 15. He was nothing but a shepherd boy. He had been out in the desert, out on the backside of the hill taking care of sheep. And his father, Jesse, said, look, I need you to go and make sure your brothers have enough to eat. They've been there a long time. No progress. Go check on them. Bring them some food. So David does. He goes there and he brings them some food and he's bringing them food. The Bible says in verse 20 that David reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry, making all kinds of noise. Verse 24, when the Israelites saw Goliath, they all fled from him in great fear. Forty days, 
twice a day. It's like Groundhog Day. Get up, stand there, run. Get up, stand there, run. Get up and know what it is that you're supposed to do, but you just don't do it. Boy, it's humorous when you read it in the Older Testament, but it's chilling when we live it today. There are some people who get up every day, they cheer, and they know what it is God's called them to do, but because of fear, they don't progress. Fear is stopping us. What's amazing to me is that you've got Goliath. Goliath literally is the source of fear that is stopping an entire army from moving forward. Now what's fascinating is David comes to hang out with his brothers, and in the midst of hanging out with them, he begins to ask questions. Hey, who's that dude? Oh, that's Goliath. Oh, wow. Okay. David listens a little bit. He's cursing God, cursing the Israelites. David hears that. And as he's sitting there listening to all of this, he begins to get frustrated. And he says to his brothers, hey, listen, you know what? I think I want to go take this dude on. And his older brother, whom God rejected as king, says to him, you little pipsqueak. Well, it's not exactly what he said, but it's a lot like that. You little pipsqueak, look how arrogant you are. All you did was come here to see a battle. Go home. But David wouldn't stop. When everyone else was telling him to go home, he stayed. And he began to move through the crowd, and he began to listen. And as, as he listened, he began to gain a perspective on what was really going on. And in the end, what happens is David, who's either 12 to 15 years old, becomes so loud that he'll take on Goliath that someone brings him to King Saul. Hey, Saul, here's someone that will go out and fight Goliath. And you know what? It goes without saying that was Saul's job. Saul was a wimp. He wasn't doing what God called him to do as king. He was a coward. And yet this young little upstart, just barely teenager, shows up and says, I'll do it. And here's what David said to King Saul. I want you to listen. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of Goliath. Wow. One little squeaky voice among literally 100,000 soldiers. One little squeaky voice began to speak, let no one lose heart on account of Goliath, verse 32. And then he says, your servant will go and fight him. If Saul had been a man at all, he'd have said, oh, no, you're not. Now, verse 34, David goes on, and but what fascinates me before we read on is this, is that even though the focus of their fear is still alive and well and has not been removed. David says, let no one lose a heart on account of Goliath. Goliath is still out there shouting, prancing, and strutting. He's still there. He's still alive. And yet David says with complete confidence, let no one lose heart on account of Goliath. No one. 
And then he says, now I'm going to go get him. I'm going to go get him. Don't you love teenagers? You know, the truth of it is, this is a quick aside, is this. Sometimes the older we get in faith, the more creaky our faith gets. David's new on the scene. The rest have been there for 40 days. David's the new guy. And his faith is alive. And he looks at fear and has a complete different reaction than everyone else. My question is to those of us who've been around faith for a long time, am I still willing to take on some things for God? Or am I in a rut? Am I in a pattern? What is it that God's been speaking to me at my heart? And is there a fear that is keeping me from doing it? David announces with incredible boldness, let no one lose heart on account of Goliath. And that's all they've been doing for 40 days. He says, I'll go get him. Verse 34, but David said to King Saul, he says to the king, listen to what he says. Hey, Saul, your servant, meaning him, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. You know, right there, King Saul should have interjected, hey, kid, don't do this. You're a shepherd boy. Goliath has been trained for war since he was your age. Why don't you go back and keep sheep? We got this covered. But he doesn't. He doesn't do it because he's a coward. He's a coward. And it says, your, 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 David says to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Here's what he says. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it, and I killed it. Wow. I'm scared of my neighbor's dog. <laughs> this kid wrestled a lion and a bear and killed them both. Listen to that. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, I struck it, and I killed it. Wow. It's amazing. If I had been a shepherd and a bear took a sheep, I'd say, adios, little lamb. I'm going to get a couple more somewhere else. It's a big bear. Big bear. Man, is that a big bear. When the lion showed up, I'd have got out my video camera and I'd have videotaped him taking a sheep and put that thing on YouTube and said, God bless the little lamb. Say grace for the lion. God bless the food you're about ready to receive. See you later. Not David. You see, David was a shepherd. He, too, he knew what it meant to take care of something and he was going to do just that. And again, the Bible says he rescued the sheep from its mouth, and when it turned on him, he seized it by the hair. As I like to picture, he headbutted it with the love of Jesus and killed it. <laughs> Verse 36, he goes on to say, your servant has killed both lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has, divide, he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion 
and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Wow. Here's what's amazing. When I read this, I saw something spiritually I had never seen before, and I want you to catch this as best you can, and it's this. When David fought the lion and David fought the bear, it was in private. Private. This was the first time he was publicly going to fight something. Here's what I can tell you. David defeated Goliath in private before he ever defeated him in public. David defeated Goliath in private before he ever defeated him in public. So I have a question for you. What's going on in your private world? I think oftentimes when our private world is a disaster, when we meet Goliath, there's nothing we can do. We cower in fear. But I want to talk about something very specific. Listen to what David said about his private world. The Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, and he will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. He had confidence in God because of his private world. He had experienced things that probably no one had ever heard about, but God had been victorious with him in his private world. Now, I have a question for you. How do you talk to yourself? I'm serious about this. How do you talk to yourself? If we put a microphone inside of your brain and we broadcast the conversation you have about yourself in private, is it one of God's rescuing of you? Is it one of confidence built through God? Is it a voice that says, I am beautifully and wonderfully made? Is it a voice that says, God loves me, He sent His Son for me, and that proves my value and my worth, and that God loves me, and I am loved desperately by God? Or is it a voice of self-hatred? Is it a, self, a voice of self-erasure? What is the voice that speaks to you? When you speak to yourself, you see, David came out of his private world and he was filled with confidence. He was ready to tackle the giant. He was ready to take on the fear that was stopping an entire nation. I think for many of us, the way we speak to ourselves defies the love of Jesus. It does. And I know in my own life, when that begins to happen, I'm either going to grab Scripture, I'm going to grab the truth of who Jesus is in me and through me, or I'm in trouble, big trouble. So the question is, how's it going in your private world? You see, David came out of his private world and he spoke of a God who can do amazing things. Now here's the other thing that I know. I bet you that Goliath was bigger than the bear. I guarantee he was bigger than the lion. I also have a sense that Goliath maybe was more hairy than the bear, 
and probably smelled worse as well. It's my gut. Big, hairy, smelly. And he could talk, and he was talking up a storm. But here's what I can promise you. In your own life, there will be a voice just like Goliath. And that voice will tell you you're going to be destroyed, you're going to lose, that you're worthless, and there's no point in trying. It will be a voice, but it's not from God. I want to encourage you to do something. Dr. Martin Sanders is going to be here with us the weekend of December 3rd. He is a man that God, as I've mentioned before, has really utilized to see people set free from things that have kept them in bondage for years. At City Church Central, we're going to have a Saturday night service, and he'll be speaking here on Sunday morning. We're going to have times of prayer for people who know that they're bound up and they can't get free. I want to challenge you, please be a part of this. If you know that you've had a struggle and you can't worm free from it, I want to encourage you when Martin Sanders and two of his friends come to join us that you'll take full opportunity because the Scripture says, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Freedom. Freedom. Now what's amazing to me is that David had an incredible view of himself. What the view was? Oh my goodness, God delivered me for the lion, delivered me from the bear, and now this guy, big, hairy, smelly, he's done. I got him. Piece of cake. And what's amazing to me is King Saul's response. Here's Saul's response. So David said to Saul, or Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Wow, there's commitment, right? Go be with you. And then what he does is he dresses him in all of his military stuff. He dressed David in his tunic, his coat, his armor, his bronze helmet, and David fastened Saul's sword around him, and he was walking around, but he could not use them. And you know what's funny? Is that the Scripture tells us Saul was a head taller than everyone else in Israel. Picture this little 12-year-old boy laden down with this armament, and here's what David says to Saul, I cannot go in these, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off, and then he took his staff in hand, and he chose five small, smooth stones from a stream, and he put them in his shepherd's bag. He took his sling, and he approached Goliath. Man, I love that. The way you fight a battle might not be the way someone else does. And here he is, and he goes to the stream, and he gets five smooth stones. And you know what the rabbis teach us? You know why he picked up five? One was for Goliath, and the other four were for his brothers. Love that. Man, if those big ogre brothers come in behind him, I'm going to whoop them all. Love that. But here's what I can tell you. David's view was through God at Goliath. And everyone else could only see Goliath. David's view was through God at Goliath. And here's what David says to the Philistine. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord 
will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Love that. Great teenage boy, cut off his head. And he goes on to say, this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. You see, when there was fear, David viewed Goliath through God and had a total different reaction than anyone else. Now, what you will discover is that David takes his sling and he sinks a stone into Goliath's head. If you look this up on the internet, it's very creepy. There are engineers that have measured the velocity of the stone. They've measured how deep into his skull. I'm looking at this going, who does this? Who does this? But the whole time I'm reading it, I'm going, go, David, go. This is awesome. Way to go. And the Bible says in verse 54, David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. Verse 57, and as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before King Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. What a teenager. You know why? In our day, a teenager would go like this, hold up the head, <laughs> take a selfie, post that on Facebook, tweet out that picture, we're good to go. See, he couldn't take a selfie. So the only thing he could do was hang on to Goliath's head. And he walked around Jerusalem with Goliath's head. Here's what the Bible tells us. Goliath was nine and a half feet tall. His coat of armor weighed 126 pounds. And the iron blade on the tip of his javelin weighed 15 pounds. Do you know how we know? I think David weighed them in his tent. That's how. After he had killed them, he took his armaments to his tent and he weighed them. And he had a little Holy Ghost dance in the middle of his tent as he realized what God had done through him. Here's what I want to tell you. If you read Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, he's absolutely wrong. He says in that book that the way that David won over Goliath was because he figured out Goliath's weakness. That's false. The Bible says that David found his strength in the Lord his God. That it was from God that he found his strength and he defeated Goliath. It was not about strategics, although they're not bad. What started David moving forward was him knowing that the same God that had killed the lion and killed the bear through David was the same God that would help him kill Goliath. Isn't that a great story? What an amazing story about fear being conquered so that people could move forward. I want to close at this time 
by asking Jesse Owens to come up here and join me. Peter, while he comes up, can you grab the microphone from the back table? I forgot to bring this. Let's uh, give Jesse a hand as he comes. Jesse, you can come up this way. Yep. Come right up here. Everyone say, good morning, Jesse. Sit right there. Greet the people. Good morning. Tell them how old you are. I'm 83, but I would have been 84, but I got sick one year. <laughs> and 40, midway in life, 40, I think, two or three years ago, God gave me an opportunity to experience personally because God is with us now, just like he was with David. Yes. And at that age, God said to me one day, I want you to go into the city of Princeton, New Jersey. Do you know anything about Princeton? Okay, that says it all. God said, I want you to go into Princeton and start a church. Here I am, a man without a degree, with some pastoral experience and some youth leadership experience in the district. And I'm blessed to be married to Kay, a woman of God, with four children. God said, go to Princeton. Tell them you were, where you were raised and how I many... I was raised in North Carolina, up a path, a mile down the path, on a tobacco farm. My dad had 10 kids. My mom had 10 kids. <laughs> the same ones, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, and I was next to the oldest. And when I came to D.C., through the invitation of my sister, that I discovered afterwards, strategized, strategized to get all of her family members into the kingdom of God. She had nine brothers and sisters and one dad and one mom. All of us have the same. And so, not all the same amount of kids. But when Dorothy gave her life to God, she said, Jesse, I want you to come to D.C. with me. The first thought gets into my head. Oh, I'll go. I want to see the president. <laughs> I got there. And the first day, the first full day I was there, I met the president of the universe, the one who created this planet, the one who loves us all, and the one that had that night in 1952 forgave me of all my sins, came into my life, and I, I sit here today with more peace and more joy and more contentment and more happiness than I would ever deserve, all because of God's amazing grace. Now, these miracles that Pastor talked about, those miracles about David and the giant, I want to read you a passage that God told me to read this morning. 
Here we and go. Here it is. Huh? Here we go. Here we go. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Can you say that? May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he cause his face to shine on us. Would you pray? Say that too. May he cause his face to shine on us. What for? The next verse says this. Listen to this, folks. So that your way may be known on earth. Oh. God is always up to something good and better for the world because he loves us all. He says, I want all of that to happen so that your way, God's way, may be known on the earth. And I want to say to you, Pastor, here we go. Older man, I, I could not have heard a better sermon than I heard today. I mean that with all my heart. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. And I want to tell you how precious it was, but I want to give you the last phrase, and then I'm finished. You told me just four minutes. <laughs> and your, why? So that your way may be known on earth, and your salvation among all nations. That's what God is always up to. That's his, that's his motivation. That's what wakes him. Oh, he doesn't even go to sleep, does he? No. That's no, what he's wakes up. him up. Yeah. You know, God is every moment working to make this world a better place. I have a question. Yes. Continue the Princeton story. It's too good to tell in three minutes. But you know what? I remember, hold my Bible. I, I, I remember. Stay in the light, I back remember, up. I remember the first Sunday we opened, we put a big ad in the paper, a whole page ad that this new church was going to open in Princeton. And I get a and I go to the back to watch the people in the lobby. We bought an old Presbyterian church that was sitting there idle for five years. Seating capacity at one time was 1,000. At that time, it was 500. They took the balcony out. And I'm in there, and, and the people came. A good group came the first Sunday. And then when I go out to meet the people after they were coming in, I was... I was that I was so excited I couldn't wait to the end of the service to shake their hand. I shook their hand and welcomed them when they came in. And do you know what happened? I got the shock of my life in that introduction. A couple looked up at me and said, Would you permit us to come in? And I looked at them, and I don't know for sure if this is true or not. But I believe because I know my nature, I believe that some tears started to come down my eyes. I couldn't believe what I was being asked. And I, I finally did look at them, and I think they were startled at my response. And I looked at them, I said, absolutely, you can come, you're welcome into this church, everybody. But you know what? As I got entrenched in Princeton, I understood 
why that question was asked. I didn't know it existed there, but it did because people are sinners everywhere. It doesn't matter if they're in a highfalutin community with lots of money and a lot of education, which is all good. But God wanted to transform that community and transform their hearts. That's why he wanted that church. And it took no time before it was full. God just started bringing them in. And I said to them, come. And when you invite them and when you preach to them like you did today, they'll come. They'll come. Because I learned everybody hurts. You know, God would have been wiser if the world needed a scientist. He would have sent us a scientist, wouldn't he? Sure. Or if the world needed a, you know, something else, I don't know. But you know what the world needs the most? Forgiveness. That's the biggie. That's what I've learned. That's the thing that every human being, I don't care where they are, what their status is, they need forgiveness. And pastor, that's what makes pastoring so incredibly blessed. I want you to do one other thing. Yes. Tell them about Buzz Jobs. Oh, Buzz Jobs? Yes, Buzz Jobs. Isn't that some name? Buzz Jobs. J-O-B-S. Do you know what? There was a lady in our church that had come to Christ, and she started going out and was smiling at everybody and loving people. And one day, this guy named Buzz Jobs met this lady. And Tell him what Buzz did. Buzz was a scientist at the university. He was a physicist, a actually. A physicist, a scientist at the university. And I didn't know it. I didn't know it. And Buzz came, and he would sit. It had three sections like this. And then right in the middle of the section, he would sit right over there where you're sitting, over there. Jesse, come stand in the light. I keep oh, telling you, stay in, in the, the light. light. Thank you. And you're sitting over there. And... Buzz came for six months and listened to me preach and explain Romans verse by verse. And every Sunday, I gave an opportunity. And when I gave the opportunity that day, I saw Buzz stand up. And a lot of others, that's how the church grew. Isn't it amazing, though? Let me interject. Here's a guy who led a Princeton physicist to Christ. Isn't that incredible? All right, now, because of time, listen, wait, very little. And because of time, because we need to beat the Baptists to the lunch buffet, I want you to, um, I, I want you to, uh, I, I want you to um, talk about Exiting Nassau Christian Center, which is located within 75 feet of Rockefeller College at Princeton University, yes. you left that church and went into foreign missions. I want you to talk about that transition. That was a tough one. One day, we were so comfortable. Kay was comfortable. We not only had Princeton University there, we had the, the theological seminary of the world there. The, one of the leading seminaries in the world was right there in Princeton. And we were having such a wonderful time. 
And one day, I was preaching in New York State, and I was praying and preparing for this night sermon, and God said to me, I want you to resign the church. I'm going to take you to the world. I came home, and I told Kay, I said, honey, I believe we've got to leave. God's, I believe God spoke to me. She said, I knew something was coming. God had prepared her heart. Wow. That's the beautiful thing of being married to a precious, godly woman. And I want to tell you something, folks. As I've circled the globe the last 30 years. How many countries have you been to? 116, I think. But I want to tell you, I could never have accomplished and done what I've been able to do and preach to the people I've been able to preach to including Germany, in so many countries of the world, because I would go, I would go to the south. I would go down to South America. I started churches in Argentina. In fact, I got to tell you, I never told you this. The farthest place on the world, when, 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 who was it? Luke stood up and said, this gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Yes. I went to the ends of the earth in that journey. I went all the way down to Ushuaia, Argentina. Aren't you surprised that these things come back into my 83-year-old head? <laughs> and I went, stay, I, went, I went to Ushuaia, Argentina, and I planted a church. And I stood there and I said, Jesus, this is the uttermost parts of the earth. When you told us to take this good news to everyone, here I am. And that church has thrived and that one church has mothered other churches. There's only 6,000 people in the community. There's not many people for them to get saved in that community. So I helped to get a pastor down there, and God moved powerfully. That's what the last 30 years have been. I could not. I All right, could not Jesse. Ask for more. We have three minutes left. And with that, I want you to encourage the people to give to the Lewis family and to the Panton family, and I want you to share what it meant for you as a missionary who people supported financially what that meant to you. Thank you. Thank you. If people like yourselves had not taken missions seriously and supported us, did you know I was born a tenant farm in a tenant farmer's family? I, I'm not a rich man. Never have been, never wanted to be. I just wanted to live for God. And so, when God took me to the world, where was I going? Missions and encouraging the people to support the Lewis oh. family and the Pam yeah. family. Thank you. Have you ever had dementia, the beginnings of it? <laughs> I think I have a little touch of it. That was proof right there. And I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me. It's because of you. You, people like yourselves, I went all over the place. I went as far as California, Washington State. I went to the south. I went everywhere, everywhere I could preach, and I'd ask them to support me. And for 30 years, do you know that there's still, several of them are still supporting me now, including this church? Because... I'm overwhelmed with God's goodness today. And I want to tell you folks, you're on the right journey.
Go for God every day and let God take care of every single issue in your life. I hope and pray that if Jesus tarries when you're my age, that you'll be half as hard happy as I am and contented with Jesus. And I All right, you could so you much. encourage the people? To give. There we go. I want to encourage you to give today, folks. I'm serious. <laughs> naturally, naturally, take these two missionaries on. Write that check today. Don't let this man stay in a state of wondering. Let, let him be assured that he's going to reach that goal for each of these two missionary families. Imminently. Let it happen this week. So that you could go on to the next phase of something. Because you can't take it with you anyway. So give it to God. Give it to God. And all you need to do is to live on Social Security when you get old. <laughs> and we all get it. <laughs> all right, listen, we're going to keep the mic. We're going to conclude our time together. And in doing so, what's going to happen to conclude our service? is that those that are going to be taking up the offering are going to be in the alleyways or the tunnels as you leave. I really do encourage you to pray about and think about what you will give to these two families. Our goal is to raise $30,000 starting this morning. Over 15% of it has already come in. And so our goal is to see each one of these families get $15,000 before the end of the month, or if you would like to pledge monthly, you can. So what we're going to do to conclude our service is we're going to stand together and we're going to ask, or I'm going to ask Jesse if he would pray over our church family and that he would pray over this offering and that he would pray over the Panton family and the Lewis family, that God would be with them and that our church would be behind them. Jesus, I want to thank you for every man and every woman, every young person, every older person. I thank you for what you have done in this service today and this incredible dynamic message taken that took place about 3,000 years ago. And we believe every single word in that chapter because it's God's word. And Lord, you've revealed the story to us today in such a beautiful way. Help us, Lord God, in Jesus' name to believe your promises and stand on your word. And Lord, bless each family, bless each person. Forgive us of our sins. Heal us of our sicknesses and bless us in our relationships and draw us closer and closer together with family and friends and neighbors. And God, please help us to serve you every day because we're getting closer and closer to you, God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, 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 amen and amen. amen. Let's give Jesse a hand as he's seated. Love you, man. Best friend. To conclude our service, we're going to spend time in prayer. If you feel as though fear has stopped you from fulfilling God's best for your life, I want to encourage you to stay for a season of worship and prayer. We have prayer team members that are moving forward now. They're going to be here to pray with you and to pray for you. I also want to encourage you to please fill out the pledge form or give, a, give financially as you're exiting through the tunnels. But we're going to conclude the service now. Again, I invite you to stay for a season of prayer, a season of worship, and let's pray and ask the Lord again to bless. Now may the Lord bless you. 
May the Lord keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. And may He give you peace in the midst of every single Goliath that comes our way. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name, in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Let's worship as we exit.
Jesus. I encourage you, if you need prayer, just come forward. For those that want to stay in worship, please stay and join us. Everyone else, you're dismissed. Thank you.
Thank you for that. Here I am to say